Hello. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. We hope that you will be encouraged and it builds your faith. Thanks for listening. Encouragement to you. And uh, last week I began a series on the comeback, and we talked about the comeback promise. And so this morning I want to continue that series on the comeback. And I want to talk to you about an individual in the scripture who had a comeback, that God gave him a great, mighty comeback. And um, I believe in 2021 is a year of recovery, a recovery of all, that not only for you individually, but for the church. And I believe God is going to help us to regather, regain, restore, reclaim. He's going to refresh and he's going to renew us in this coming year. And it's going to be a year of recompense, that what the enemy has meant for evil, God is going to turn it around for his good. And what we have sowed in tears, we will reap in joy. Amen? And so it's going to be a great year. In Job chapter 42, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 5 this morning, but we get the eavesdrop on this conversation Job has with God after God had given Job a rebuke. And we get the eavesdrop on this conversation. Let's pick it up in verse 1. And then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. You asked, who is this who hides hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Listen, please, and let me speak. You said, I will question you, and you shall answer me. In verse 5, I have heard of you by the hearing of your ear, but now my eyes see you. But now my eyes see you. I see it now. As we navigate through this passage this morning, I want to highlight an attribute of God I think the Holy Spirit wants us to see this morning. And... I want us to understand this attribute. It's an attribute of God that God is an intentional God. God is intentional. By that I mean his actions are not an ends unto itself, but an end, always an ends to a means. And so he's intentional. And whenever he, is, he, is doing, he does something, he does. He's not doing something just to be doing something. He's doing something because God is doing something. He's the God of intentionality. When he's doing something, he's doing something because God is intentional. And when he's doing nothing, he's doing something because he's intentional this morning. This is why we should praise him when he's doing something. But I should also praise him when he's doing nothing because even, even, though, even though he's not doing anything, he's doing something in my life. Is there anybody in this room this morning that can testify and understand that, he, that when he's doing nothing, he's doing something in your life? This is why David's testimony is so true when he said, I will bless the Lord at all times and his praise shall continually be in my mouth. Because he is a God of intentionality. 
God is intentional this morning with everything that He does. That is why when we sing the song Waymaker, uh, Miracle Worker, Promise Keeper, in the middle of that song we sing and we say in the bridge or the chorus or whatever that when I don't see that He's working, He's working. When I don't see that He's working, He's working. God is always working. And so this, is, this understanding is essential and paramount. It is also uh, uh, important for us to understand that it can also be an unsettling principle this morning in, in one thing that in one thing like this, but it is it is complex in our relationship with him. If I don't understand what he's doing, um, it can be complex in my relationship with God. Sometimes the complexity of our relationship with God comes out of the fact that sometimes we don't always understand or see what God is doing in our life at every particular moment. We don't always know how he's working or what he's working. It's easy to celebrate that when we're together here, but when you're in seasons and circumstances where you need him to do something and it seems like he's doing nothing, then this truth is a bit more difficult for us to embrace. Because I know he's doing something, but I don't always see what he's doing. This is why I want to talk a little bit this morning about a spiritual principle I think is the foundation of where I want to go this morning. I want to talk about the spiritual principle of perspective this morning. Where you sit determines what you see. Where you sit determines what you see this morning. Where you sit determines what you see, and what you see determines what you do. It's difficult for me to understand what you're doing if I'm not seeing what you're seeing. And so I can see what you're seeing. If I can see what you're seeing, if I'm not sitting here, if I'm not sitting where you're sitting, then it's difficult for me to see what you're seeing. Because where you sit determines what you see, and what you see determines what you do. That is why some of you uh, have many of those who are onlookers on your life confused this morning. They can't understand why you are so passionate in your praise. They don't understand how you are so consistent in your commitment to God. They don't see how you are so steadfast in your service Because they don't sit where you sit, so they don't see what you see. And so they see the reality of the onslaught or the attack or the trials or the troubles or tribulations, but they are not sitting where you are sitting. The Bible said that when we get saved, we are seated with Christ in heavenly places. Our perspective changes, we see things differently. We are seated high, and so we have a vantage point where other people don't understand. That's the reason that some people don't waver in their commitment to God, because you see something, and and you see something not with your eyes or your head, but not just with your eyes, but with your heart. Eyes in your head give you sight, but eyes in your heart give you vision. Eyes in your heart... You see 3D. You not only see height and, and, and width, but you see depth. And, and some of you see things for your life and for your family 
that others don't see. One of the things that I'm going to miss about Ron is that Ron was always able to see with his heart. He was always able to see vision and the future. He, we, every time we were together, and this is the truth, when we were ever together riding or visiting or going to the hospital or doing something, he was always talking about the future. He was always talking about what could be. What he was seeing, but it wasn't just what he was seeing with his eyes. It was what he was seeing with his heart. He was seeing vision. And, and he was sitting from a perspective that most didn't sit. And Ron always sat at a place where he saw the good in everybody. He saw the good in what God was doing. Even when he could not see all that God was doing, he could see that God was doing something And he was always giving God the praise. Even sometimes when God was doing nothing, he still gave God praise because he believed God was still going to do something. And so this morning, I want to encourage you about the spiritual principle of perspective. And when we, if if others who look at us and cannot see certain things about us or understand why we worship the way we do or why we're committed the way we're committed because they don't sit where we sit, they've not seen God do what God has done in our life. And if this principle applies to people who misunderstand us, not understanding how we do what we do, certainly this principle also would apply to a God who's whose ways are not our ways, whose thoughts are not our thoughts. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so is his ways higher than our ways and his thoughts higher than ours. And if other people sometimes don't see why we do what we do, sometimes when we look at God, we don't always see why God does what God does because God's ways are always higher. God's ways are always are, are, are different than ours. His thoughts are different than ours. And his reasonings are different than ours. And, and sometimes they may not make sense to us, but they make perfect sense to God. He sees things we don't see. And sometimes we see things with different set of eyes than what God sees. We see this sometimes through Scripture in John 11. When Lazarus died, Lazarus' sister said, he's dead. And Jesus said, no, he's not dead. He's just sleeping. Same situation, but we don't see it the same. I'm not sitting where he's sitting. Then I don't see what he sees. It doesn't make sense why he would delay his arrival to Bethany when he gets there and Lazarus had been dead for four days And it doesn't make sense. If I don't see what he sees, I don't always understand what he's doing. And this is a principle we have failed to teach in in the church. We've taught prayer. We've taught praise. but But we have not taught people how to handle seasons. You you see one thing and God sees another. And what I what I think I should be seeing is not what I'm seeing then faith has to be the thing that bridges those, that relationship and holds me sit steady when there's a gap between what I see and what God really is doing and what I actually see. 
when I should be seeing one thing and I feel like I'm seeing another, I got to believe sooner or later he's going to close the gap and alienate that gap of what I see with what he sees. And at the end of of my Job story, I can say, I've heard you by the hearing of my ear, but now I see my eyes see you. It couldn't be. Could it be that we trust our eyes and not God? This principle is personified in the life of Job. All this is seen in the Job's narrative. We read out of chapter 42. That that's the end of the story. But in chapter 1, we see something entirely different. See, we have the perspective of seeing the end of Job's story. And we see the end of that story and how that it ends. And we have the perspective of seeing it from God's point of view. But how did Job get to the place in Job 42 where his response to God was as it was? And, but in chapter 1, we see something entirely different. And, and it's amazing that when the story began, what we see is, is that in the beginning, the text introduces us to this man, Job. And verse 1 of chapter 1, it says, There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright and one who feared God and shunned evil. In other words, it's telling us this. The text teaches us that, that, that Job was an upright man and one who feared God. He was, a, he was a great man of the East. He was a God-fearing man. He was upright. He was blameless. He, was, he feared God. He shunned all evil. But then the text continues to tell us that God has an audience with angels and Satan is standing in line and, and it comes time to get his turn before the throne of God. And God says, where have you come from? And Satan responds, to and fro the earth. God responds to Satan, have you considered Job? In other words, he recommends Job. He asked Satan, where have you been? He said, I've been to and fro the earth. From the earth. And God says, have you recognized my servant Job? Have you, have you considered him? In other words, God recommended him. The text tells us that he is the greatest man in the East, right? Then God recommends him. Why would he tell, why would he tell him? Why would the text tell us he was a great man and a great man of the East? And how can we understand why God would recommend him? If he's all that, it seems like it would exempt him from trouble, right? If Job was such an excellent man, you would think that because of his faithfulness to God, his God-fearingness, his integrity would exempt him from trouble. Maybe because of who he is, it qualified him for it. Maybe because he was an upright man, it qualified him. Maybe because of who he was. Maybe he's recommended because God knows Job can withstand what Job doesn't know he can withstand. God recommends him because God's, God's eyes of Job has, in God's eyes, maybe Job had already been tested and God is trying to find someone who can lose everything and not lose him. 
question this morning is sometimes we don't see things as God sees it, and sometimes God, we don't see ourselves as God sees us. But God is always looking for somebody who can lose everything and not lose him. Can you lose everything this morning and not lose God? Maybe you've been tested. Maybe you've already been tested and you've passed and God can trust you enough to recommend you. But this is interesting because God asks Satan in verse 8, he says, Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on the earth, a blameless, upright man who fears God and shuns evil. And Satan's response is, in verse 9, he says this, he says, Does Job fear God for nothing? Does he fear God for nothing? Here's what Satan didn't say. Satan didn't say that Job wasn't an upright man. He didn't say that he didn't walk with God and didn't shun evil. But what he did say, he didn't didn't question what God said about Job, but what he questioned was, he questioned Job's motives. He said, does he fear you for nothing? And then verse 11 says this, it says, but now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. He will curse you to your face. Stretch out your hand. In other words, Satan is saying he's not, he's, he's not serving you and committed to you because of you. He's committed to you because of what you do for him. That is what Satan is saying. He's only committed to you because you have been good to him. He's only committed to you because you have made things convenient for him. Remove his convenience, and that will reveal whether he is committed to you or not, or if he's just committed to what you can do for him. I'm here to tell you sometimes trials will sometimes test our motives because we can't be committed to God just because of what God has done for us. We have to be committed to God because we love him. He said, if you'll remove the convenience of his life, it will reveal whether he is committed to you or what you do for him. And then verse 10 says, I love this. It says, have you not made a hedge around him and around his household and around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the works of his hand and his possessions and have increased his land. You have put a hedge around him. Notice, that's what Satan said. Have you not put a hedge around him? God didn't say that. Satan said that. How does Satan know that God put a hedge around him if God didn't tell him? Unless Satan tried to get to him and he couldn't get to him. Not only is there a hedge around Job, but around his household and all that he had. Can I tell you that there is a hedge around you this morning and all your children and all that you have? Whatever you've given birth to, children, a business, church, this is why we should always be consistent in our praise because the devil has been trying to get to you, but the hedge has been protecting you. 
How many are thankful for the hedge that God has put around you, you and your family? We complain about what does get to us and what Satan does get to us and how he gets to us. But we should be praising God this morning for the stuff he's tried, but he couldn't get to us because God has put a hedge around our lives. I don't know about you, but I'm thankful for the hedge that God has put around my life and around your life. Every once in a while, we should give God a hedge praise. You realize that all week the devil's tried to get to you He's tried to get to your family. He's tried to get to your finances. He may have tried to get to you emotionally. But God's hedge around you has kept Satan from being getting through and getting to you. But we see that God had put a hedge around him. But then God grants Satan permission and says, okay. He gives him permission, but he imposes restrictions. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay your hand on him. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. In other words, God gave him permission, but he imposed limitations on him. Can only, in other words, God said, You can touch him, but this is the limitation on what you can do. When I say you gotta back off, you gotta back off. When I say let him go, you gotta let him go. When I when I say you've gotta stop holding up holding it up, you gotta stop holding it up. In other words, when God speaks, when God speaks, everything happens. And so God allowed him to touch him, but he put limitations on his life. And watch what happens in the text. This is interesting. In verses 14, the Bible says all of a sudden uh, his oxen and donkeys were seized by Sabans. They were robbed. And then we see another, while he's being told that news, that a messenger comes and says his, his sheep and servants have been killed by a fire. And then finally, the last blow is that his children were taken by a windstorm. In other words, all of this was satanic-induced calamity. But to, if you and I looking at it on its surface, all we would, as a casual observer, all we would see is that this was a stretch of bad luck for Job. Because nothing was really out of the ordinary or out of the natural. Sabans came and robbed him. That's natural. Fire came and burned his sheep. That's a natural coincidence. A windstorm came and took the life of his children. That all seems natural. It's important to understand this morning how in satanic attacks that Satan's nature of, of this is intentional when we look at this. One thing after another. First of all, his assets get taken. And, and Job's holding on to his faith. His sheep are burned. And Job's holding on. His children gets taken. The subsequent nature of what is happening, he, he, Satan is working sequentially. Blow to be, blow after blow, back to back to back. The compound effect, the strategically trying to weaken Job's resolve. Something Satan tries, tries is to knock you out by wearing you down. Sometimes the strategy of Satan is 
is to try to, 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 to destroy our resolve for God by continually trying to wear our lives down. Blow after blow, trial after trial, difficulty after difficulty, loss after loss. What is he trying to do? He's trying to wear your resolve down towards God. He's trying to break you down to the point <coughs> to where all of a sudden now you begin to question the foundation of God and believing that God is good. You begin to question whether or not God is faithful because he's trying to, he's trying not just to, to crush your confidence in the goodness of God, but he's trying to erode your conviction in God's character. He's trying to get you to believe that God in it to erode the foundation of your faith, which is God's character. And when he takes your ability to believe, he takes your ability to recover. Because what Satan wants to do is wear you down to the point to where you're unable to recover from the blow after blow after blow. If he can wear your resolve down, this is why young Christians, it's important to get around people who are able to disciple and encourage you. Because what will happen is Satan will use one trial after another trial after another trial to wear down your resolve and your commitment to God so that you'll give up your faith on God. Because as long as you have your faith, you have the ability to recover from whatever Satan tries to do to your life. As long as you believe, and as long as you believe, you have the ability to recover and we can see this in how Job responded. See, Job's recovery in chapter 42 was key to what his response was here in chapter 1. The text says that Job does two things upon hearing all of the news that he heard. He responded two ways. The first thing is, the Bible tells us, that he, he won, he fell to the ground. The actual translation means he fell and began to weep. He began to grieve. Job doesn't just, it's a book that helps us with grieving. Job is a book that helps us with grieving. Job doesn't deny the reality of what he lost, and he doesn't repress the reality of the pain Faith doesn't deny reality. Faith believes God in spite of it. You hearing what I'm saying this morning? Faith doesn't deny the reality of pain or the reality of what we've lost. But what faith does, faith believes God in spite of the reality. Faith doesn't say, listen, faith, faith doesn't say there's giants in the land. Faith said God is bigger than the giants that are in the land. And so he weeps, he grieves. He weeps and he grieves. And after he grieves, the Bible tells us he worships. Worship comes after his weeping. And the reason he wept first is because it's hard for God to fill a heart that's full that must be broken and contrite and emptied first 
where even wherever there is loss, there should be grief. And just because something doesn't physically hurt doesn't mean that you're not hurting. That, uh, that you're not hurting. Just because there is a, just because there's no physical pain doesn't mean that, we're, that you're not hurting. You know, this morning as I was preparing and praying, the Lord told me this morning, and, and this being a difficult day, because normally Ron, who's here, who sits there on the second row, it's not here, but the Lord spoke to my heart and said this. He says, he says it's okay to grieve. It's okay to weep. It's okay to be sorrowful. And my heart is sorrowful this morning. And it's okay for us as a church to weep. It's okay for us to grieve this morning because we lost someone who's very special to us. Who is very special to this church. Ron was like what Barnabas was in the New Testament. Y'all heard of Barnabas in the New Testament? Y'all realize that the There would be no Apostle Paul without Barnabas. You realize the Apostle Paul never would have been who he was without Barnabas. The Bible said that Barnabas helped him after he escaped out of Damascus after his his conversion. And after Paul began to preach in the synagogues that they wanted to stone him. And he left Damascus. And and it was Barnabas that brought him to the the apostles uh, in Jerusalem the leaders, and they, became, they were afraid of him. They didn't receive him because they were afraid of him. They didn't think what happened to him was real. And Barnabas is saying, hey, what's happened in this guy is real. He has changed. God has saved him. And they rejected Paul. And Paul went and spent three years in Arabia, and the Lord appeared to him and discipled him and spoke to him. But the Bible said that there was a revival that broke out in Antioch. (coughs) And the the New Testament church sent Barnabas down to Antioch to see the revival that was going on that was led by Philip. And it said that when Barnabas was there, while he was there, the Bible said he remembered Saul. He remembered him. And the Bible said that he sent for him and got him and brought Paul down to Antioch And for two years, almost three years, Barnabas, the Bible said he took him. He took Saul. The word is epilumbato. He took Saul beside him. He discipled him. He he walked him through early part of Paul's walk with God. And him and Paul helped disciple. And then it was after that season that the Holy Ghost said, separate unto me Saul and Barnabas for the work of the ministry. And they went on their first missionary journey together. Had there not been a Barnabas, we would not have had a Saul. And Ron was like a Barnabas. He would take men alongside him and take people alongside him and encourage them and build them up. He always had an encouraging word. And I'm just here to tell you this morning and here to tell you that sometimes it's okay to grieve when there's loss in our life. It's okay to grieve over a marriage that's lost. It's okay to grieve over a loss in our life because 
Sometimes we have to empty out so that God could fill us back up again. But after he grieved, he began to worship. He began to worship again. He began to worship God. (coughs) And we see that throughout the whole book of Job, Job talked about his frustration, talked out his frustration and to God, and he, he poured that frustration out to God. And then in chapter 38, God began to answer Job. And not only did he answer Job, but by chapter 42, Job responded to what God said. And he responded the correct way. He responded the correct way. And he, he responded to God, and he said, My ears have heard of you, now my eyes have seen you. And sometimes we go through life and in the middle between the time we get the announcement of God's plan for our life and the moment that we see what God is doing in our life, sometimes it's in that in-between place that we grow in God. And so Job responded correctly. He was able to respond correctly in chapter 42 because in chapter 1 he was able to grieve and he was able to worship God. And he began to worship. After his weeping, he began to worship. You know, Psalms 8-2 says this, that through through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemy and silenced the foes of the avenger. Do you know that praise and worship establishes a stronghold in our lives so that the stuff of torment cannot get to our minds? In other words, worship is a hedge to our mind. Worship is a hedge that God puts around our mind. The enemy wants to remind me what I lost and 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 of what I lost and and place strongholds in my mind so that so that the word of God cannot get to my praise or get to my worship. And it says this, that those tormenting thoughts, we, we worship and we build a hedge of worship around our, with our praise so that the tormenting thoughts cannot get to our minds. And, we, and it silences the foe and the avengers of our life. It drowns out the tormenting voices of the enemy. Job wept and worshiped. What did he do? By his worship, he built a fortress. He built a fortress. So that every argument against God could not enter into his mind and had to go through the fortress of worship, that hedge that he had built in his mind. The Apostle Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 4 about strongholds. That we are to pull down every imagination or every argument that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. That we are to destroy every argument. How do we do that? We do that by hedging our minds with worship. The arguments that say God isn't God. This church stuff doesn't work. And what happens is is that when there's strongholds or strongholds there, then the word cannot get through the challenge, the arguments. This is why people can sit under years of teaching about forgiveness and not forgive. They can sit under the years of teaching 
about giving and never learn to give. Until a stronghold is removed, the word cannot gain entry. That is why it's important to always be preaching truth. To always be preaching truth and always allow the release of the spirit that removes the stronghold. So that truth can find entry. We need more than a message this morning. We need a move of God. We need the spirit of God. And you can't worship until you weep. Acknowledge loss, the process, that loss. Take that thing to God so that we can respond correctly to God. Because Job's heart had to be right in order for him to manage that middle season between the time that he worshiped and the time that he recognized what God was doing in Job 42. Because the trouble with Job's story is chapter 1 to chapter 42. He had to keep his faith strong in the middle. And what God was doing in Job was he was preparing him for chapter 42 so that God could bring restoration to his life, so God could bring double back to him. And so Job was able to say, my ear heard you, now my eye sees you. And God, and God turned. You know the turning point in Job? The Bible said, and when Job prayed for his friends, God turned for him. He gave him double after he had prayed for his friends. Job had to grieve, grieve. He had to weep. And there's three aspects of forgiveness. We have to forgive others. We have to forgive ourselves. And many times we have to forgive God. And I believe this is somewhat of a blind spot in the body of Christ because sometimes we don't address the pain that is underneath. And because we haven't grieved for things that have been lost, we've lost our inability to worship and we've lost the inability to use worship as a hedge around our minds and our spirits that keeps the enemy from tormenting about us about what was yesterday, what God has put under the blood. How many are thankful that your past is under the blood? That Jesus has washed away every sin that we have. And that now by your brazen worship, by your worship, you put a hedge up in your mind where the arguments against God cannot land now because you've learned to worship and you've learned to put that hedge about your mind so that the enemy cannot steal and torment you about your past or about what was lost or about what you failed at or what you didn't do or what you weren't able to do.
And so this morning, my ears have heard of you. Now my eyes see you. In other words, Job's perspective changed. His ability to see God, he always knew God was doing something, but he didn't know always what God was doing. And in chapter 42, he comes to the resolve of realizing, now God, I've heard you, but now through my healing, I now see you. I now can see what you're doing. I now can see how you're moving in my life. I can see now what you're doing. And I believe all of this was contributed to Job's response to God in chapter 1 when he was willing to grieve over what was lost and take to God what was lost. And then he worshiped. He never cursed God. He never stopped believing in God. Even after blow, after blow, after blow, he continued to worship him and continued to stay steadfast in God even though he couldn't see what he was doing. Some of you may be here this morning and you do not see what God is doing. You're saying, I don't know what God is doing in my life right now. I can't see it. You can't see it because you're not sitting where he's sitting. But even when you think God is not doing something, God is doing something this morning. And maybe, maybe this morning you need to grieve. Maybe you need to weep over what was lost. Take it to God. God, that was painful. God, that hurt. God, I've struggled through this. Maybe it's forgiving somebody. Letting it go, letting God deal with the pain of that and truly letting go, forgiving yourself, allowing yourself to be forgiven for the decisions that maybe you made that brought pain to your own life. And maybe it could be even forgiving God. God, why'd you allow this to happen to me? God, why'd you allow this to happen? I want to tell you, nothing takes God by surprise. And sometimes there's even things that happen in our life we have, to, we have to forgive God. Because we didn't set up the worship strongholds in our life that kept the enemy from attacking our minds, saying, God's not going to bring you out of this. God's not going to, you're not going to recover from this. God doesn't love you. God doesn't care. But sometimes we have to establish worship because we have to build that fortified stronghold so that the enemy can no longer torment us. So that our worship will silence the enemy this morning. Your worship can silence the enemy this morning. Your praise can silence the enemy this morning. Our worship can silence the enemy this morning. I can assure you God is doing something in our lives this morning. And even when we don't see it, I can, can, can guarantee you that he's doing something. And at the end of the day, we'll be able to sit back and say, God, we've heard you. We've listened and we heard your voice. Now we see what you are doing. But it has to first begin with us coming before God.
And just as the Holy Spirit speaks, the Holy Spirit spoke to me this morning and said, it's okay to grieve this morning. Pastor Adam, if you'd come. But when we grieve and empty out, we have to fill up. And what we have to fill up with is the worship. And we have to build strongholds that fortify our minds, that our praise would fortify our minds so that the enemy cannot use the past to keep us from believing in God. And many of you, this morning, the enemy has sent blow after blow after blow against your life. And he's trying to erode your ability to believe. With all else this morning, believe God. Trust God this morning. Just believe God this morning. Just believe Him this morning. He will help you this morning. And believe me, after you have given it to God and after you've worshipped, God will pay back recompense. And what the devil meant for evil, God will turn around and make it for good. Because the enemy has to give back seven times what he has stolen. And what was sown in tears, we shall reap in joy this morning. You hearing what I'm saying? What is sown in tears, we can reap in joy this morning. Stand with me this morning if you would. Maybe you're here this morning and you've just questioned what God was doing. Maybe you're in a season and circumstances where you need God to do something in your life and it seems like He's doing nothing. But I can tell you this morning that even when he's doing nothing, he's doing something. And maybe some of you this morning have experienced great loss in some areas. Maybe this is a transition season for you. Maybe you can't see what God is doing right now. But if you allow God, he'll allow you to see. We are seated with Him in heavenly places. And I believe God will open the eyes of your understanding. Maybe some of you have never grieved over something that was lost in your life that you felt like was taken or that you felt like someone stole or you felt like the enemy took from you. You never grieved over that loss. And I want to open this altar this morning for us to grieve. For us to come and just come to the Lord and just say, Lord, I have, I have this heaviness on my heart over this. I've never grieved over this loss in my life. I want you to feel free to come and grieve this morning. I want you to feel free to come and bring it to the Lord. Come and lay it down before Him. My heart is heavy this morning. I'm grieving this morning. 
Because I feel as a church, we didn't just lose a church member. We lost a father figure. We lost a patriarch. We lost a friend. I lost a friend. I was so touched this morning. Bob Hart came in and he said, Pastor, he said, just want to know if you need anything. He said, I know Ron would do that. And he said, I know your heart's probably heavy this morning. I just wanted to come in and encourage you. You don't know how much that meant to me, Bob. Because on Sunday mornings, Ron would say, what do you need, Pastor? What can I do for you? He'd always come in and hug me and say, I love you, that I prayed for you today. And I'm going to miss that. I'm going to miss that. I don't know about you, but I'm going to miss that. You can't always understand why or see what God is doing, but I know this, God is in control. And God is going to take us higher. And we're going to fulfill every dream Ron ever had for this church or what he believed in us will come true. And I read you that scripture out of Hebrews 11. He's part of that heavenly crowd now that is looking down upon us, that is encouraging us to continue to run the race. He's part of that great heavenly choir of heavenly hosts that are encouraging us to continue to lay aside every weight and sin that we may fulfill the call that is before us. And so I open this altar as Pastor Adam sings this song. I asked him to sing this this morning. Thank you for joining us for River Valley Community Church's podcast. If you feel led to give, you can click on the donation link in the description or visit our website at rivervalleymadison.com. If you've enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe or share with your friends. Thanks again for listening. God bless you.